Let's begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, you chose to reveal your Son, Jesus, to us by the ministry of John the Baptist, as he pointed his finger at Jesus and announced, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. May our eyes always be fixed on Jesus, as John's were, and also give us the same sort of finger to point to Christ for the sake of our neighbor. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so, uh, sorry about the uh, confusion. Two weeks ago, we worked ahead, and then we worked backward, and then we worked backward again, and now we can work ahead again. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's not confusing. Uh-huh, makes complete sense. So, let, before we uh, look at what I prepared for you, let's also, let's read the text. And again, you know, if we don't cover everything on, on what I prepare, that's fine. Um, it's as much a devotional resource for you as it is for us to, to, to guide our study. Um, and also then it guides my, my consideration of the text so that I come prepared. So you can see, I could just keep these notes to myself, but I let you have them. So John 1, uh, let's begin with verse 19 and read all the way through to 34. You want to read for us, Luke? Mm-hmm. I don't care if you want to. Will you read for us? Thank you. John chapter 1. No, you went too far. It's totally track. It's totally track. Verse 19. How far? Through 34. Read loud too. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you a prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither of the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stand one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap whose sandal I am not worthy to untie, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, Jesus came, coming toward him, said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the of, of whom I said, After me comes the man who reigns before me, because he was before me. He, I myself did not know him, but for his purpose I came baptizing with the water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. He saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you sent see the Spirit descend and remain. This is the this is he who baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have all witness that this is the Son of God. Alright, good. And if just for the sake of noting this, look at verse thirty five and again the next day. Alright. So I I we'll talk about that later on, but you can see 35, 29, the debt next day, the next day. And I know we talked about that in regards to John in the introduction, that there's quite a bit of this chronology. And John seems to be much more sensitive uh, to chronology than the synaptics. All right. So there's two handouts. There's a white one and a yellow one. Uh, This is what happens when the teachers load paper in the copier and you don't check to see what color is in the copier. And you get yellow. So yellow's good too. But we, the white one you might already have. I handed that out a few weeks ago. All right, so if you already have that. Uh, but just to refresh, because we've talked about some of this already, 
Um, the transition from John the Baptist to Jesus is the transition from the old to the new, from promise to fulfillment, from shadow to light, from type to reality, from earthly to what is it, from all eternity, as was in the beginning. All right, And you're going to see this all through John. You're, it, we'll talk about it too as we look at the second half of what we just read, talking about the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover sacrifice, for example. All right. But here, um, it's, the context is baptism, right? And we're talking about John's baptism and then Jesus' baptism and how John's baptism, again, is valid, but for what? We talked about this. Anybody remember? For repentance, right? Whereas Jesus' baptism gives, not only, it's not only for repentance, but it's for the forgiveness of sins and for new life, for regeneration, to be joined to Jesus, to be washed in his blood. It, it, there's a lot more to it. So John's baptism, you know, it's kind of a step, right? We've talked about that before with John. There's a little step and then there's the bigger step or step down, step up. All right, what else do we want to talk about there? All right, so John's uh, identity is the, we talked quite a bit about this, I think, two weeks ago, maybe. Maybe we didn't talk that much, but it's worth recapping. Who John is is a big deal because the Jews, namely the Pharisees and Sadducees, they want John to be, do you remember what I said? To be one of them, right? To be on their team. They want to, you know, this is how it always is. Um, somebody gets popular and then you try to bring them in, right? Um, think about like politicians do this, you know, Rand Paul, libertarian, right? From son of Ron Paul, who was really libertarian. And then the Republicans wanted him because he was getting too popular under his father's probably popularity in part, although he was much more moderate. Do you know Rand Paul, Tennessee, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and you'll, you'll see this often or they'll take somebody who's on the fringes and then move them up to the front Barack Obama was that way I guess this is an uh, Ocasio-Cortez person right? she was on the fringes but then she's brought to the middle brought up in front even she was in the party but you see so trying to take somebody who is gaining popularity and then capitalize upon that for the sake of the, of the party you know? and, the, and the Jews in John's gospel it's not it's not so much an inflammatory kind of thing, like people might use it today as being like anti-Semitic or something. He, he's just he's using a broad term to describe a narrow group, and the term Jews um, that pops up, like with Nehemiah, that pops up in the Babylonian exile, because how many tribes are left of Israel? Which tribes are left that return the faithful? Benjamin and Judah. Right, so and Benjamin is really brought under Judah. So it, it Judah Jews. That's the, the etymology of that word. Um, so it's not so much negative, but it is meaning to encompass all the different tribes, if you like. Not the tribe. Well, I shouldn't say tribes. All the different parties. The Sadducees who deny the bodily resurrection. Um, the Pharisees who have, um, who are sometimes called the scribes. Which that Sadducees. I can't remember which way that goes. The Pharisees are the lawyers. That's who they are. They're sometimes called the lawyers. They're the ones who took God's Ten Commands, ten words, and blew it up to 600 and whatever it was, 14, I think. Something like that. Um, Because, you know, they're not clear enough. So then we have to make them more clear by adding complexity. You're supposed to scratch your head and say, how does that actually make it more clear? And if you know, like, a modern-day Hasidic Jew, the legal requirements of being, you know, of practicing their faith uh, are pretty severe and, and, and numerous, right? All right. So who are you? They want to bring him in. And so his identity is essential because then they'll know what they're working with, right? So who are you? Elijah. And you can see on the notes on the white handout, you know, there is this, there is this, uh, hmm, remember, what do you want to say? Um, I guess it would be a pious kind of myth that Elijah, because he was assumed into heaven, also would come back. Yeah. I was going to ask, why did they ask if he's Elijah if that's been, I mean, if he's the one's heaven Right, and I think, I mean, I prepared this so a month ago. He was taken into heaven and they didn't. Right, right, and Elijah is promised to come back. I think it's Malachi. Didn't we study that with Malachi? We did. Malachi 3 and Malachi 4. 
So, because we looked at that. Did we look at, we studied Malachi, right? Or did we did Micah? Micah. Oh, I'm so confused. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's in Malachi 3 and 4. So there was this promise of Elijah who was to come. And because he was assumed into heaven, they extended that out in some of the um, extra biblical writings to also apply to Enoch. Yeah, because he kind of, it was no more, you know, but it didn't say he died. Um, it was, so it wasn't so much a confession of the resurrection. It was that these guys lived in this special existence. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see. And then that's the first one. So Elijah is a, is a messianic figure, though. I mean, that he's going to come and do like the Elijah stuff did in the Old Testament, where he, I mean, he was a pretty fiery preacher, and he, he spoke against kings and against um, uh, the prophets of Baal, for example. All right. Are you the prophet? Now, when he says the prophet, who are we supposed to think of? Who's the prophet? Mm-hmm. Actually, no. Moses. I know. We think of Isaiah because he's got the biggest book. Um, and he's probably the most prominent. And all the minor prophets, kind of pretty, or a lot of them lived at the time of Moses and, and seemed to draw from Moses. But when he says the prophet, then we're talking like Moses. And that's again because there's a promise in Deuteronomy 18 that I will send amongst you. How's, how's it go? Anybody got it? I, I can probably get to it quicker than you because I can type it in. Uh, Deuteron- I will raise up for, for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. All right. So there's the promise given to Moses by the Lord of a prophet like him. So again, what are they looking for? The promise of this prophet fulfilled. Now, of course, we know who is Elijah to come. You know, so the come who... Who's the one who comes and fulfills that? Actually, John is, but we'll talk about that. <laughs> Jesus is too, though. They both are. No, you're not. It's fine. The Gospels aren't clear on that. Jesus says, no, I'm not Elijah who is to come. Or John is not Elijah. John says, I'm not Elijah who is to come. Jesus says, you are. It depends on which Gospel you look at. It's, it's, it was a trick question. So don't worry about it. Um, but Mo, clearly, who comes uh, as fulfilling Moses um, the giving of God's word, speaking in the Lord's name. Jesus, thank you. Sounds cool answer. All right, so uh, it's not John, but it's Moses. And you can, um, you can see, wow, I've got all sorts of notes here that are interesting. Uh, Elijah is seen as one of the witnesses in Revelation 11. Yes, Ron. Well, the last section of that chapter is interesting also. Mm-hmm. Moses has to explain... To the people, and they ask, uh, How do we know the prophet speaks the words of the Lord? Yeah. And then the last verse says, When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come to pass, that is the thing that the Lord has not spoken. Right. The prophet has spoken presumptuously, it should not be afraid of him. <laughs> yeah, so, like the pastor says, I have great visions for this congregation. <laughs> you know, I know pastors are asked to be visionaries. And, um, you know, have grand plans and that sort of thing. The problem is, it takes two to tango, right? And so, the pastor's vision isn't always the congregation's vision, and uh, and sometimes it's 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 just easy stuff. You know, like what's the best thing for a pastor to do to kind of rally the troops? Have a building project, right? You just have a building project because then you raise money and everybody's excited. And there's new and there's change. The problem is, how many building projects can you do? At some point, you end up with a bunch of buildings. Anyway, and then where's the people? Yeah, so um, that's the problem with visions, right? And, and having grand schemes. Um, the Lord's vision, though, he actually accomplishes, right? So when he sets forth a vision, say, I'm going to gather all nations. I'm going to bring I'm the four corners. The wind's going to blow from the four corners of the earth. All the ways he talks about bringing the whole world together under one shepherd, which we'll hear today in our gospel. Um, he accomplishes that, and he does it. Maybe not to our satisfaction or to our liking, uh, or in our kind of timeline, but he does accomplish what he says. Yeah. And you're proof of it, actually. <laughs> so it's good. Thanks, Ron. I know. I, I want to read fast, but I also want to read slow. In, I'm looking at Luke's study Bible. I mean, like, there's more notes on your page than there are actually things in the Bible. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. So, and the reason for that, maybe it's worth mentioning it now. Um, the reason for that, and the reason why I've taken, been very deliberate here at the beginning, um, is because, I don't know, we talked about this in chapel, maybe it's a good way to think of it, is there's, there's, a corner, there's either a cornerstone or there's a foundation. And then everything else is built upon that, right? I don't know why I feel like drawing lots of blocks here, but you get the idea, right? And that's used as a picture of the church, but it also is in the way the gospel works. It's in this prologue, I likened it to an overture, again, he's, he's introducing a whole bunch of things all here in this, these first, this first chapter that he's going to then ex- explicate or um, um, reveal with greater detail as the gospel unfolds, right? So, so it's worth really digging deep here at the beginning so that I can keep pointing back and say, like we talked about in chapter one, um, it's like, a, you don't have to watch this show, I wouldn't even suggest it, but Game of Thrones, so we're in season eight, it's the last season. Everything in season eight was in season one. So I'm watching season one at the same time so that you can see, oh, this is finally, they're resolving that thing that they introduced way back in season one that I'd forgotten because it was 10 years ago that that season came out. These shows take a long time. So it's just another way, it's a way of telling stories, right? All right, so Moses, Jesus is identified as Moses, as the prophet, Acts 3, Acts 7, Luke 9. Um, but uh, people believe Jesus, or in John, people believe, God, John's gospel, people believe Jesus is the prophet as well. John 6 especially, right? So is John the Baptist Elijah or, or not? He says no, Jesus says yes, to answer, to point out what I was saying, Barb. And you can see the citations there, Matthew 11, 17, and Mark 9. Um, John the Baptist, I gotta be clear here about the Baptist versus the evangelist. The Baptist does not claim the title of Elijah, but Jesus confers it on him. You see how that works? So, I mean, this is always the thing. People say, you're a great pastor. And I said, no, I'm not. And they say, but we say you are. I'm like, okay, whatever. I mean, I don't want the title. I don't want to be called great, you know. That was, that's been my joke in the past. How do you end up with the title, the great? Like, Alexander the Great. I mean, do you call yourself the great? You just conquer a lot of things. And then, you know, the histories say, that was pretty great. Let's call him the great, right? Or um, Leo the Great was a pope, right? So, yeah, the magnanimous. <laughs> I would prefer that. That sounds more impressive. No, it's conferred upon him, and that's what Jesus does too. John here is emphasized, has emphasized that his witness is the final. Uh, uh, he is the, final, the last prophet. He's not the prophet, the greater prophet that is to come. And uh, this is another note that I, I just hint at here, but we really need to make a point of. It comes up on the yellow handout. Is that the baptism of Jesus has already happened in John's gospel. Whereas in Matthew, Mark, Luke, it's directly narrated for us here. John, later on, in the second half of what Luke read, John says, here's what I saw happen, right? So he recounts it um, rather than actually just uh, it being told as a story. And the reason for him recounting it is to show, again, his role, um, his office, what his his place in that whole, in the whole hierarchy of salvation um, is. And that is, I, I saw, I heard the voice from the Father. I bear witness to say, here's what the Father said. And this is who Jesus is. I saw the Spirit descend on Jesus. Wow. You know, and that tells you I'm not all that terribly important. <laughs> I mean, I am. John's important, no doubt. But um, he doesn't claim importance of himself. I think that's the important thing. Uh, which was coming up here in a moment. All right, so then, are you the prophet? No. You have to give an answer. And now, Ron's right, he quotes who? Not the prophet Moses, but now the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah. Yeah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Um, So wilderness, uh, that will come up in John 6 again. Uh, The wilderness is the place of transition, I guess, right? That's where, the, that's where Israel is between Egypt, that is the land of bondage, and then the promised land. So they're in that, that wilderness. And there's a way through the wilderness. If you've uh, read it carefully in the Exodus, they get to the promised land pretty quick. They basically make a straight way right to the promised land. Okay, And then they get there and the spies go in and 
Well, we're not so sure we can conquer it. So, I mean, uh, this idea of the way, which we'll hear a lot in John, the way was made very clear to them. They knew right the way. Um, they were able to pass through um, foreign lands, people who were terrified of them because they had heard what happened to Pharaoh, right? Like the king of Moab. And uh, so they get all the way there. And then they, but in, in doubt, uh, they won't receive the gift that the Lord has prepared for them. So then he sends them back in the wilderness. And now what does the Lord do to the, his way, to the way? He confuses them so that they end up wandering for 40 years. I mean, it's like a Bermuda Triangle or something, right? It's just like you can't find your way back home, right? But he doesn't bring them back um, until after that period of time that he had foretold, that he had set them up. So there's a, a time of repentance, which again is in the wilderness. Um, and notice what, it, what he does in the wilderness too, because he gives the law, right? And he gives that because of, why does he give the law? On Sinai? What does Paul tell us in Galatians? Yeah, because of trespasses. The law was given after, the law was given by Moses after the promise, um, what is, Paul says, what, 430 years or so, right? Why? Because of trespasses, because of disobedience, right? Because, namely, they refuse to believe and trust in the Lord, right? So then they end up at Sinai, they have the law, and now that wilderness wandering is also about uh, repentance, being brought uh, into a right relationship with God again, through worship, being guided, um, through the temple sacrifice, or excuse me, tabernacle sacrifices and being led by the pillar of cloud and fire. But they live as nomads, which isn't all that probably foreign to them, although it had been a while because they'd lived in Egypt, you know, for how many years was that? What? Yeah, it was a long time. They lived in between. But Abraham, you know, their father, father, back in the, back in the day, he was, in, he was a nomad. He was a wanderer, um, just sheep, you know, herder, that kind of thing. Shepherd. Uh, so, you know, everything is about being brought back into right relationship to God. And so this, this prophecy of Isaiah has both in its, in, in its context, in the background, um, being led from Egypt to the promised land, but also is pointing forward now to the way that, um, that the Lord straightens us out, <laughs> if you like. You, know, you, know, you like being straightened out, right? It's kind of like a paperclip. You have to get bent, you know, and then, or a hanger. Yeah. Yeah, um, talking about the thing is the law. Kind of interesting that, I mean, how do we explain that the people before that didn't have the moral law? They did. Yeah, and Paul's very clear about that in Romans 1, Isn't chapter 3. Yeah, it's written upon their, their hearts. We call that the, sometimes called natural law, right? But so the second table of the, of the commandments. So what we number commandments four through 10, these are self-evident to, to the human heart, right? Don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery. That is break marriage. Um, don't cover what isn't yours. Don't destroy someone's reputation, right? Speak well of your neighbor. This is actually self-evident. That doesn't mean all cultures have it universally well. Actually, there's, it, it's pretty much distorted in every, every culture. Um, but like marriage, for example, is prominent. Now, is it marriage between a man and a woman? Is it, mar- is it you know, monogamous? Not necessarily. But there is some picture of, I mean, because family is self-evident in our bodies, right? That we're made to, to bear children and, and then to raise families. How that actually plays out in different cultures changes. And it's God's law then actually that clarifies it and says, yeah, yeah, I know that your fathers took more than one wife. One, they're idiots. Two, I mean, and that should be self-evident, but just look at their lives. But two, in case you don't really want to just read the history, um, this is not the way that I made you. All right, look at Adam and Eve, right, as an example. Does that make sense as far as the law goes? Yeah, so natural law has its limit. We'll put it that way, too. Um, as we can see, just the way that that plays out in different cultures. I mean, we say it's, na- it's self-evident that you don't, you don't take human life. And yet we have legalized means of taking human life. You know, just through some kind of hoop jumping and saying, well, it's not life until it exits the birth canal, which is very strange. It's not human life, I guess is how the ethicists say it. Very strange stuff. Yeah, so you have to, I mean, you have to do some, some philosophical hoop jumping to make it work, but that, that's how we're pretty good at it. That's, that's the problem, right? 
of taking what's evident and, and twisting it into something that it's not. So, yeah, thanks for that, Ron. Um, the law is given, again, because of trespasses, because what is evident, they've departed from what they already know in their heart. Um, but, oh, I mentioned the second table. The first table uh, maybe isn't quite as evident, except there is, no, there is no one in this world, never has been and never will be, um, whose life isn't one of worship. They have some god or gods. And even those who say, I have no god, that's their god. <laughs> I don't know if you think about it. I mean, because they will defend that position. Um, Yeah, the absence of a God. Well, no, their God is nothing. But that's that's his name. Well, he's not personal. He's impersonal. But yeah, and it ends up being themselves. That's absolutely right. Yeah. But but that that is, like I said, there's always someone to worship. And we try to, what we're trying to do is set set ourselves apart from personal responsibility or culpability for our mistakes and our failures or for our blessings and our, and our, and our goodness. And so we abstract it into a God made in our own image, right? So that we can either defer responsibility, well, that's God's fault, <laughs> or, or we, we, have, we don't have to actually be responsible for our own well-being. We can actually just pray and say, you take care of me because I don't want to do it, Right? So that's the natural religion of man. And again, everyone is religious. Sorry, there's no such thing as not being religious. It's just who do you worship or what do you worship? And, and Luther's clear about that in the commandments. So that's revealed in the Ten Commandments, specifically God's word, you shall have no other gods. Right? They already know that. They're already doing it. They're having other gods. But he, he clarifies and he solidifies exactly what that means. Right? There's no other god but me. Or before my face. Don't bring any, any false gods before my face. Which even is a little bit more strong, I think, the Hebrew is, than the English. And the second table, third, or excuse me, second commandment, third commandment, again, it's been out from the first commandment, as actually all the commandments do. Um, but uh, specifically, you know, well, what, what's the purpose of this God, or, or what would he have you do, which is pray. Again, everyone's religious, everyone prays, they just pray to something or someone else, right? Or to themselves. And also then, um, how do we know what God has said, which is namely his word, which is given on that day of rest to hear his word. Um, And apart from him speaking to you, you cannot know the way of God. You cannot know what is his desire for you. You can't know your way. You can't know the way apart from him speaking to you. And that has to be revealed again, because we like, again, naturally want to believe that there's many ways. So this actually does play out well here with what John's talking about is make straight the way of the Lord. Because a crooked path is what? Or an uneven, Isaiah uses that language too, uneven ground or crooked path. What's the problem with both of those? You lose the way. Yeah, you lose the way actually. Yeah, you get lost. Um, Or it's too difficult. It's it's like, who was it? Sisyphus that was pushing the rock up the hill? Yeah, and you just keep going. You just can't quite make it. And then the rock rolls back and you got to start all over again. Right? I mean, does that, that's, well, actually, that's what people think of the Christian religion, right? Is because it's more, they think of it, generally speaking, as moral obedience, doing the right thing. So then they, you build up all this capital, having done the right thing. Of course, then you have a failing, and the, hill roll, the rock rolls all the way back down the hill, and you got to start over again. And it's this constant slug, or slog, that's the right word, right? Of, of trying to do, do what is right and not do what is wrong. Which isn't really the straight way. It's not really the way that Jesus says. And that's not what John points to. He says the way is pretty simple. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's not about obedience, it's about repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You see. And then the obedience follows from the forgiveness of sins. That, maybe it's a cart before the horse kind of problem, right? People think, if I obey, God will love me. And it's like, no, 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 no. God loves you despite you. And because he loves you, then he will work in you. Obedience. But it will be according to his pleasure, not according to yours. Does that follow? Maybe, that, maybe I should re- repeat that. Uh, if you want to use big words, which comes first? Sanctification or justification? Eh, see, now I just made it more confusing. Just. Yes, you're justified freely as a gift in the cross of Christ. You're made right, you're forgiven. Right? And then the Christian life, the fruit of that justification, is born 
But only if you're grafted into the tree, only if you receive forgiveness first, can you forgive others. There's lots of ways the Bible talks about that. Right? But as we get the cart before the horse, and we, so we ask people to prove that they're Christian before they can receive the Christian gift. You're like, what? Actually, you don't want the, you don't want the gifts that we have to give. And if you have to prove that you want them before you receive them, then you're probably trying, wanting to receive for the wrong reason. So better to give and then, and then let that work, by, again, by the promise of the Holy Spirit, work faith in the hearts of Christians. We, you see this play out with baptism. I mean, we, generally speaking, we don't really set up barriers to baptism at all, right? We baptize, and, and as one of my professors said, and it kind of stuck in my memory, um, because we asked him, he said, like, you know, do you do like a long catechesis, teach them the faith before you baptize them? Actually, no, we generally don't, although there are times in Christian history where that happened. Um, we baptize them and let God figure it out. Right? Now, we don't, actually, we don't abandon them, right? So we baptize and teach, as Jesus commanded in Matthew 18, or 28, excuse me. Yeah. All right, good. So making straight, you can read more about that. Uh, the way, the way is not just about repentance, although that's I think that's primarily what's at heart. And again, he's going to point to the lamb. So the way is in the lamb and through the lamb. Um, but it also then later becomes uh, used to describe the whole church. So before they were called Christians, they were called the way people of the way. Um, and I think there's wasn't there a Bible translation in the eighties called the way? Yeah, like kind of a contemporary paraphrase or translation right so that this is an old term and you'll see this happen with John he picks up on um, terms that maybe they're not really prominent even in his gospel they may um, and they're not necessarily prominent in the scriptures but then he blows them up and makes them a really big deal um, and and then they not more than that because of John's I think John's prominence John's gospel and its prominence in the Christian church the things that John introduces the Christian church really latches on to and then, and then it, you can see it bear fruit in preaching and in liturgy and in hymns that come out of the church. They're like, it's not as big a theme in the, maybe in the other Gospels or in the Bible as a whole, um, but then they really latch on to that one idea and really run with it from John. All right, now I let my computer go to sleep. That means I talk too long. All right, that's my hint. Why are you baptizing? Um... Now, John's baptism is a little tricky, I would say, um, because it depends on which gospel you're reading as to what the purpose of his baptizing was. Now, remember, Ethan, as Ethan pointed out, it's for repentance, right? Now, here in John's gospel, and I think really only in John's gospel, the purpose of his baptism is to reveal Jesus. To reveal Jesus. So he is preparing people for the way to, to receive Jesus. It's not just for repentance, it's not a rit- just a ritual washing, but it's namely uh, this Christological thing, pointing towards the Christ. And then he, he's going to tell us exactly. You see, it's baptizing, baptizing. I baptize with water, uh, but there's one you don't know. He's coming. He's going to baptize. I'm not, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal strap. Um, he's going to baptize with spirit, right, and fire. We get that also. That's not here in this part. That was earlier. Um, so John's um, identity is essential to understanding his place in the story. Makes sense, right? Who are you? And not only for the Pharisees and what to do with him, but how then we are to understand um, John in relation to Jesus as well. There, there actually is a pretty strong tradition that Jesus was one of John's disciples. Well, I, and I, honestly, I had never heard that. But there's, there's actually plenty of evidence and, and early Christian writings that, that said this. They, they thought that Jesus you know, had followed after John, just as like Jesus' own family follow after him. John being his cousin, Jesus you know, kind of went out to follow him, to listen to him. And because John is revealed earlier than Jesus as having some kind of special office, right? It's John here that actually reveals Jesus and begins his ministry. Right? Before that, John is the one who's baptizing so there, there's kind of a handoff, if you like. Um, and it is interesting to think of Jesus then need, needing to be... People knew who he was, because he was one, if he was one of John's disciples. Um, but now they needed to see him for who he actually is. 
not, not as a disciple, but as the Messiah. So, I don't know. Have you ever heard that before? Yeah, I thought that was a little... I don't know. It just never came up in, in, from professors or anyone. Um, but there, there's quite a bit of evidence. Before Easter, on the hmm. Yeah, History Channel's dangerous, by the way. <laughs> Handle with uh, kid gloves. Yeah, go ahead. And it was the life of Jesus. Mm. And there were four different people of whatever churches they are, whatever professors they were, uh, kind of narrating the idea of John not knowing yeah. Jesus. And I'm like, well, he was his cousin. He had to end Oh, yes. But he certainly does not know him as the Messiah. That's right. <laughs> yes. So, especially in Mark's gospel, uh, but I think it's prominent, or it's not prominent, but it is certainly present in all of them. It's what the scholars sometimes call the messianic secret. And in, in Mark's gospel, people don't seem to know until the very end. The whole gospel goes by and nobody seems to understand who this guy is, which is very interesting, right? Yeah. There's a passage where he kept all the things in the heart. Right. That has some reference to her not. Yeah, I don't. I've, I've taken that expression not to. I mean, I could see it that way. I, I've taken it to mean that she, um, uh, she set them up in her like infinite recall so that she, when, when St. Luke interviews her for the, his gospel, then she remembers. She took note. Maybe it'd be another way of saying it. You know, or she was careful to re- remember. But, but then again, it could, you're right, Ron, it could just mean that she kept them to herself. Uh, you see this with Jesus, though. He often tells them, don't go tell anybody. And then what do they do? They go tell people. And th- that's also to reveal the nature of, of good news. <laughs> you, can't, you can't keep it in a bottle. It's not, I mean, once the genie's let out, it, they could, you know, that's well, it. I think she buried something in scriptures and wait for his time. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's in John. That's in John chapter 2. You know, woman, uh, you, do you not know my, is, my time has not yet come or my hour, is not yet my hour? Or how does he say it? In regards to turning the water into wine? I think that's what it is, yeah. So that certainly is at play in John's gospel then too. That's a good point. Um, but here, again, I think, you know, this actually is part, really John's gospel, right? Because his purpose statement, these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. That purpose statement implies that unless these things had been written, unless, you, unless it is revealed to you through preaching, through the hearing of God's word, you don't know and you cannot know who Jesus is. There, there, there's no way, even if you walked and talked amongst you, you would not understand who he was Um, apart from actually words from God or his revelation. Uh, And you see this play out. What was I going to say? Oh, uh, in in the way Isaiah describes him in the suffering servant, 52-53, and saying, you know, he he had comeliness, I think is the old English word for it. We, We didn't esteem him. We esteemed him not, right? Not just because he was like marred beyond any human semblance, as he also says, um, which is referring to his suffering but um, and his trial. But actually, that um, he looked and was just like one of us. How would you even know? So that, that's when you see the pictures of Jesus where he looks like uh, Kenny Loggins or Ewan McGregor or... Uh, who is it, right? I mean, where he's just like... It looks like he could be a celebrity. And you're like, that's not exactly what the... What the at least what Isaiah says. It's like, unless you knew, you would just say, yeah, just normal guy. Yeah. So maybe picture him with a mullet and, uh, and a beer. I don't know. <laughs> oh, that's probably sacrilegious. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> uh, he wasn't so probably didn't have a lot of hair. Yeah, yeah, so he didn't cut his hair. That part's true. That part's true. Give him long hair. That's nice. Or at least. <laughs> and a beard. Uh, um, all right, so yellow sheet. Ready? Good. Baptisms of Jesus. I already talked about this a little bit, that uh, it's already taken place. But baptism is the context for, Jesus, uh, for John's um, 
explanation here that behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And sometimes, I think, maybe because of it, the way it's used in our liturgy in particular, both in the honest day, right, um, in the sacrament of the altar, but also in the Gloria, Excelsis, right, where we also say Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's in the service of the word. Uh, it's not in the context of baptism in our liturgy. So we don't, I don't think, maybe we don't catch that here, in John's gospel, he's been baptizing. He's been talking about baptizing with water. He's, and, then, and then, behold the Lamb of God. And then, oh look, I came baptizing with water and I, and I bore witness saying, at Jesus' baptism, this, this, and this, right? So what we have is we have this really unique expression, which we'll talk about towards the bottom of the sheet. We have this unique expression that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And it's given in the context of baptism, which should... I don't know. For me, it kind of turns things on its head a little bit. Because when we think Lamb of God, we're thinking... Calvary. Calvary, cross, that's right. We're also thinking... What lambs take away sin? The scapegoat and the Passover lamb, that's right. We're thinking all the lambs of sacrifice made in in the temple. And we're thinking the cross, right? And here, John puts it in the context of baptism. And they go together, right? And we see this in John's own uh, epistle. Well, see, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I might as well talk about it, because here we are. Um, All the way at the bottom of this page. For commentary on this expression, who takes away the sin of the world, see 1 John 3, 4 to 10. Okay, so we're going to the end of the sheet, (laughs) I guess. And I mean, this is John himself, same same John, I I would say. giving a commentary on what he means by who takes away the sin of the world. So listen to this. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous, Jesus. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, revealed, testified to, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. So it's what we were talking about. Um, when, when joined to Jesus in the forgiveness of sins, that is, what did he say? Being born of him? Is that how he says it? Uh, yeah. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. You say, well, how is that? I've been born of God, but I still sin. Yeah? What is he talking about? His sin has been carried away. His sin has been forgiven. If you've been born of God. Right? But if... So all sin, right... But who are the sons of children of the devil? Those who have not been born of God, right? We're not children of God. But he who has been born of God does not sin. You're like, wait a minute, does not sin? I do sin. Does not sin. God does not hold your sin against you. He does not reckon it to you. Um, Rather, he reckons to you Christ's righteousness, his forgiveness. The blood of the Lamb covers all that you say, do, think. So... Uh, the absolution you hear uh, in church today is a declaration of what's already true. Your sins have been covered. Your, your deed, all that you thought, said, or did that you think God is holding against you it has already been, been forgiven in Jesus. I'm there to tell you, you forgot. So in case you forgot, here you go again, right? In the stead of by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins. It's been done. Okay? Um, so one of my friends did, the, did this a few times. You can only get away with it once, and if I tell you, I can't really get away with it. So um, this will prevent me from actually doing it by telling you. Which is, he got up one Sunday, he said, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen, in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins. And people got upset with him. They're like, wait a minute, you didn't give us a chance to confess. What? He's like, you're already forgiven. I, I don't need... You're here. You're here to confess. I know. You know. I know. You know. You're a sinner because you're here. You're here to hear the absolution. And he just, it was just a rhetorical point, but you can tell. I mean, that really aggravated people, of course, um, because they want to do their thing, and it's like, no, no, no. The doing, the confessing of your sins isn't the thing. It's the forgiveness of sins that's the thing. 
All you're doing is admitting what, what you, what's already true, which is good. God likes to hear that. He likes you to confess. Um, he loves to hear the truth <laughs> spoken by you. Um, but you're really here for the absolution. It's just kind of a... We wouldn't be saying something. Yeah, we, you wouldn't be saying anything. You wouldn't, well, you wouldn't, my point is you wouldn't even be here if you didn't believe I it. We wouldn't be saints. Oh, right, yeah, saints. You're not saints by your doing, which is, of course, that's the Roman error, and actually a lot of evangelicals think of it that way, too, um, if not most of them. Um, but you're saints by, by holy declaration, by God's own word. I forgive you. Yeah, which is not a Lutheran distinctive. It is in our context. <laughs> There's not very many people who hold to that position, uh, but our assertion, and uh, you can read our confessions if you need proof, is that this has been the teaching of the apostles. It was the teaching of the church fathers. It wasn't until, uh, really until uh, the early medieval period that you start to see a, a dramatic shift away from being made saints through forgiveness, or being declared saints by forgiveness, to righteous and holy living. And basically, you know, you know what? I'll just say it. When a church tells you this is what you must do, what are, they, what, what are they trying to do to bring order and um, regularity and discipline out of fear, basically, to make you afraid? That if I don't do it right, then I'll get excluded or I'll be set apart, right? And the Christian church is completely the opposite of that. You get to be a part of this actually despite who you are and what you've done, <laughs> right? And you're brought in not because of your identity or because of your, heritage, you know, your obedience, but because the fact that you actually don't. The opposite. Then in the Catholic Church, what made them a saint? Well, there's two, they have two levels, right? So they have canonization. That's when you actually are declared a saint. And that, what is that? Two miracles, uh, have multiple eyewitnesses, and, and there's a certain period of time, unless you're John Paul II, and then they kind of uh, ramrodded, as they say, but I would say, you know, they accelerated his canonization. Because um, he's already been made a saint, right? John Paul? Normally it's something like 20 years from your death or something like that. They have rules. Um, but they, they actually, because of purgatory, they don't believe anybody's a saint until the resurrection, apart from those who actually get to skip purgatory because of their merit. And that's those who they canonize. Like, oh, really? So what, who are Christians? They're people on the road, on the way to sainthood, but they're not there. Uh-huh. Uh, which is, I guess maybe we would think that's a little demoralizing for a congregation. Uh, but like I said, you know, pastors like building projects, Christians like projects. They, they, like, you know, they need something to work at, to improve, to do better. Of course, you have that, um, but that's not what makes you a child of God. Does that make sense? You get to, to just do those things by virtue of already being made part of the household. Yeah. And uh, your doing isn't what makes you a child or keeps you in the house, actually. That's, actually, that's, just, that's your identity that God has given you. Yeah, so, uh, the, they, like I said, it's the natural religion of man that we need to have this progression and we need to work. Uh, and that work, obedience, uh, accomplishment, then attain merits, and merits then please God. And when you please God enough, then you receive and so that's why they invented uh, purgatory, so that then uh, you have to keep working even after you die. <laughs> Just make it even worse. Well, that's true. I mean, it's caught up in politics, power, and in wealth. So, as things are. So, all right. That was a little tight tangent, but that's okay. Uh, I mentioned on the next day, I wanted, I wanted to point that out to you when we started reading today. And so here it is again. On the next day... Um, John saw Jesus coming toward him. And you can go back and look at this in John's Gospel. There's different ways to break this down, but I'm pretty confident that if you look at chapter 1, you're going to see there's six days, well, there's five days, and then the beginning of chapter 2, 2 verse 1, is the sixth day. Uh, And remember, this will come, or, yeah, I did tell you this in the introduction, oh, months ago, that when it comes to his suffering and death, John's very careful about Holy Week and indicating what day we're on. As a matter of fact, I think from John's Gospel, it's the only way we would know what happened on Tuesday, for example, because John tells us. Um, And then then this is where it gets really, I think, significant, is that 
at the resurrection, the days stop being counted. Well, that's not exactly true. John does. Oh, a week later. We heard that last week. He keeps counting. A week later, he keeps counting. Yeah. And then that evening, and then, yeah. So, so you end up a week. But, but actually, he goes from evening to a week later, and there's like, what happened in between? What were the disciples doing that whole week? Doesn't, he didn't even tell us. So maybe, maybe I'm still making a good point. I don't know. The problem is, is that when you get to chapter 2, he says, on the third day. But if you read chapter 1, it's on the next day, next day, next day. And it's not three days, it's six days. And uh, so, of course, you know, as the scholars go, they say, well, that means that John was confused and he made an error and he doesn't remember what days or on what day because he's not consistent. All right. Um, I would suggest something different, which you can see here under on the next day, that whole those three paragraphs uh, in saying the sixth day is also the third day on the sixth day. God made what during creation? Yeah, he made man. Right, so we have you have the creation of man being brought against the third day. Now, third day is maybe a little less obvious. You're probably thinking on the third day is the day of resurrection, right? After three days, thinking like uh, you know Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, right? Jesus uses that as a picture of his death and resurrection, or the destruction of the temple, and on the third day um, it will be rebuilt or restored, referring to his body. Um, also, though, look at, the, what is it, the fifth paragraph down, Exodus 19, 10 to 11. Go to the people, this is Moses, and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And then you see it play out in verse 16. It came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, etc., uh, and then also the sacrifice of Isaac, Genesis 22. Uh, then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And then he and Isaac travel up. So, um, hmm. so you have the giving of the law and you have the sacrifice of Isaac. Obviously, you see it play out later in the gospel with Jesus' death and resurrection. So you have three days being combined there with the sixth day being the man. And again, this is all in the context of what gift? Of the church? Baptism. baptism, right? And baptism, you receive new man, right? New life. Um, and in baptism, actually, we have a, an ordinance that does what the law could never do. Makes you a child of God. Grants you Christ's obedience, not your own obedience, right? Gives you forgiveness of sins. Gives you the Holy Spirit, so the Spirit dwells upon, rests upon you. Makes you into the new temple, into the new Jerusalem. All that is in baptism, which is pretty incredible, which is why um, this congregation has such a prominent baptismal font, which I love, instead of like some bowl in the corner, which sometimes you see, which is fine too, you don't, but a prominent one, because why? It, whether we like it or not, I mean, it is, it, yeah, it's, it's at the center of our Christian life, daily dying and rising, as Paul would say, and, that, and then as Luther gives us in the catechism, that we rise um, and we remember the sign of, Sign of the Holy Cross, make the sign of the Holy Cross remember the name given in baptism, which is the, for, for our daily life. That's our walk is as baptized children of God. Yeah, so, um, so new day, new life, new creation, you know, sixth day, but also third day, fulfilling the law. Um, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So remember, um, well, that's the language of substitution, right? Taking away, he, the lamb, takes the place of, for you and then bears your sins in his body upon the tree, for example. Um, what else do we have? Third day, Isaac. Oh, and yeah, and then the fulfilling of the law, I said, with, with Exodus. So is it really a contradiction? I'm getting ahead, that's chapter two, but sixth day. Well, that's true, too. That's true. So, but it is worth noting, if John's so careful about saying the next day, the next day, next day, and then he says third day, and you're like, wait a minute, have you not been counting? And uh, uh, as you see in, like, John's apocalypse in Revelation, the uh, numbers and days are significant. They all mean something, even though we don't always know what they mean <laughs> as we read, right? Or their meanings might be uh, lost to us now, right? So the sacrifice of Isaac, we heard during Lent, right? We heard that Old Testament reading. And that, I feel like I need to go back and, and just 
read that for detail because I missed the third day part. I know I've read it, you know, every year. We hear that text and I, I, I just I don't know. I never caught that it was at three days, uh, which is pretty incredible, right? You gonna say something, Barb? No. You're just thinking the same I thing. Missed it. I missed it. Yeah, I missed it too. I, I'll admit my feelings here. All right. So, behold the Lamb of God. Now uh, we really should talk about this. Um, Lamb of God. Now here's what's interesting. This expression is only used twice here in John's Gospel, verse 129, and then again, 1 verse 35. Okay, behold the Lamb of God, as Jesus was walking by. Um, this is John revealing who he is. It's, it's given to Jesus. It's repeated only twice elsewhere in the Bible. And you think, what? We hear it twice every Sunday. <laughs> that we have the Lord's Supper anyway. So what, what's the story? Uh, Philip, Philip's dialogue with the Ethiopian eunuch connects... Jesus with the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, 7 to 8. Remember the scroll of Isaiah? As they're walking or riding along. He was led as a lamb, as a lamb to the slaughter. So that's simile, right? As a lamb, not the lamb, but as a lamb. Um, And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So there's one. And then despite, again, the limited use, it's only there and. John chapter 1, uh, 1 Peter picks it up. Now, 1 Peter, I say, is baptismal catechesis for the apostolic church. Uh, I'm, that's a loaded phrase. Do you have any idea what I'm talking about? Here's, I'll just say it very quickly. 1 Peter is a book that teaches the church. Peter wrote to teach the church about baptism. Okay? And that'll change the way you read it if you read it as teaching about baptism. It's, baptism is front, front and center through that whole book. And again, it's written to the first church. And Peter being one of the apostles. I almost said chief apostle. Well, he was. What can I say? He was in Jerusalem anyway. Uh, and so then it finds prominence in the liturgy of the church. So St. Peter connects the term of the Passover lamb and the, as being spotless and without blemish. Okay. So we have lamb of God now connected by Peter in 1 Peter, a book about baptism, to... The Passover lamb, again, as, I, as, um, as we pointed out earlier in class, usually when we think lamb of God, we think Calvary, we think suffering and death, we think sacrifice. Peter's baptismal book, again, 1 Peter, connects the Passover lamb to your baptism. Uh, so maybe this helps with that kind of awkward phrase that you're washed clean in the blood of the lamb. Like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. How, what's the blood of the lamb doing in my baptism? That's for me to eat and drink. That's the Passover. That's not, okay, getting it? You're connecting? So baptism and the Passover are connected by Peter, which you can see there towards the bottom of the page. And then John will continue to subtly continue that theme, but not so explicitly. Uh, there's lots of indications of Passover-y kind of things happening in the background um, from, from the very beginning. But is explicit in chapter 19, 14, in Jesus' suffering and death, that it was the day of preparation for the Passover, right? And then uh, 1936, which is brilliant, not one bone of his one bone of his body was broken. Not one bone was broken. I didn't actually write the whole. It's not a very good quote because I didn't really get it right. But you get the idea. That's connected again to the Passover lamb, Exodus 12:46. And then I think later in Numbers as well, where, it's, where that was the command of God, that the Passover lamb would not, you wouldn't break his bones. And then Jesus fulfills that. So John is not so subtly saying, this man dying upon the cross is the Passover, the, the, big, big T, the Passover lamb, the fulfillment of all the lambs that died in the past. Mm. Getting all that? Yeah, you've probably heard this before. I don't know. And then again, um, Isaac, sacrifice of Isaac's in the background. Because, again, who takes Isaac's place? A ram, right? A male, a male lamb takes his place. Um, and then I would suggest that it's the sacrifice of Isaac um, that is then the prototype that Isaiah picks up on and when he brings that, that whole expression about the sheep before its shears, led as a lamb to the slaughter. That thing... Think Abraham leading his son Isaac up to that altar. Now the sacrifice of Isaac, um, 
is central in Jewish thought, not, not only just in the ancient world, but even to today. That, that, I mean, you know that text is uncomfortable, <laughs> awkward. I don't know. What do you want to say? I mean, it's, it's very... God commanded Abraham to give up his only begotten, his only son, only begotten <laughs> son, right? To kill him. And, but that's the promise is in the son, right? And uh, is God commanding child sacrifice? I mean, there's all sorts of things there that are ooh, awkward, right? Uh, do we really want to talk about it? And yet, um, it's prominent in Jewish thought, and it's prominent here, I think, in John's Gospel in the background. Um, and uh, what the Jews would say is, in, the, in like the Talmud, the, the other writings that come out um, after the New Testament, Jewish commentary would say that um, that actually the burnt sacrifice of that ram, um, those ashes are Isaac's ashes. <coughs> that the death of Isaac is the death of that lamb. Um, meaning Isaac doesn't die because the lamb has died for him. But that lamb is understood by God as Isaac in his place. Which is actually kind of helpful because that's how we talk about Jesus, isn't it? That he dies in our place. And he see, when, when the Father sees Jesus, he sees uh, us, actually. And thus, actually, that's beautiful reversal then when we stand before God in judgment on the last day. Who does he see when he looks on us? Does he see us? No, he sees, he sees his son, yeah, who we've been clothed in. Right? So that great reversal is there too. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, I, I think... Uh, Dale mentioned earlier that you were thinking scapegoat, right? And that's, I think that's a, it's not just Passover lamb, but I think you're right about it being scapegoat too, because um, the lamb bears the sin and carries it away, right? Which is what they did. They set the scapegoat out into the wilderness and it, um, it was left abandoned to die. So you can read more on that there. So there we go. I, I, I know we went a little bit long, but now we can move on. That's all fundamental though. Thank you very much. The part of the large piece.